Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Here it is, one more time. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, y'all, it is David Summers co-hosting this big dog on the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the stud cast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring, back into time. With the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron? Oh, man, doing great, Dave. Really, really glad to be here, man. Feeling good. Got a great one today. Man, I'm just really, really enjoying these stud casts where we're getting to in this time frame. We're about to get to that Harley race record crowd and, uh, you know, just a lot of stuff going on and Happy to be here, man. Feeling good. Got the old horse saddled up and uh, pretty much ready to ride. I'm telling you, it seems like we have, or for me anyway, cherry picked some of the best years in wrestling. And I think you're in the sweet spot right now. And I know you're ready to get this thing on the trail. But in the meantime, listen, every stud cast, every super stud cast is available at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Dot com. It is the stud store that is loaded with everything you're looking for that has to do with the stud DVDs. It's all there, t-shirts, photos, and even the novel written by the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller called Brutus. You can check it out and get it autographed. Super Studcast, Studcast, they're all at tnstud.com. All right, so we are set. We're ready to get on the trail. So where are we riding to today, Stud? Yeah, like I just said earlier, a few minutes ago, we're in the most exciting time frame so far since the 194th episode. I cannot believe that. Uh, you know, this one, I think, is uh, just as good, maybe better than any of them so far. They just keep getting better. I'm really, really proud of that and happy about it. You know, Southeastern was kicking some butt back in 1977. And and when I go back and look at my cards and I look at my TV formats and I see the things that were going on, it just brings it all back to me. And uh, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So uh, what happens here is, like I said, we're in the record-breaking month, the all-time record-breaking month for Southeastern Knoxville of April 1977. And our today's training, uh, it's a very rare one. Uh, it requires us to wear our wrestler hat for a change, which we haven't done in a while. 
And we're going to take a look at how long it took for a young wrestler to become a star and why it took so long. Uh, I think uh, this is a topic that I think fans will really enjoy. The focus then uh, on this studcast is on the Knoxville Coliseum, obviously, and uh, on Friday, April 14th, 1977, just 13 days before the NWA world champion, Harley Race, was going to make his first appearance ever in that part of the country. Uh, we are going to discuss the card. We'll talk about a very controversial match and TV show the next day. And uh, we'll get the results of the card and the attendance. And the learning tree question of the day, uh, this one makes a comment. Uh, the gentleman does, and he asks a question. Basically, he says, okay, teach me the economics of booking tag teams rather than single matches. If I needed to book a two-hour card, how does it make financial sense to fill one slot with a tag match where you pay four guys or five if you have a manager instead of just two wrestlers? You know, and I think uh, last week we talked about this question. I mentioned it, and, uh, you know, I thought this gentleman was a promoter and uh, – <laughs> I may have some information on that before this one's even over, Dave. So I got you. All right. So another great question. And it sounds like another great studcast ready to go. I guess we're going to put on those wrestler hats and try to become stars as quickly as possible in today's training. So my horse and I, Hokey Pokey, we are ready and raring to go. Let's get on the trail, Ron. Well, you're right about today's training. You hit that subject just right. But but I had to ask about that horse, Dave. I'm really, really sorry. Yeah, it like I always do. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, it sounds like another lazy horse, man. How can a hokey pokey, man? I mean, you know, a pokey horse is not a fast horse. So, uh, and, you know, I already said this, this ride is full of everything, man. Uh, and it's going to require some get up and go from hokey pokey. And, you know, uh, and, uh, there's no other way for him to get there today. He's a smart little horse, Ryan. So you, you don't worry about my horse. My horse is going to be fine. I've got spurs on today. I don't even need them, but I've got them just in case. And Hokey said, put your right foot in and take your right foot out. So I intend to use these spurs if I have to. So I'm, I'm ready to get on, on the trail. Let's do it. Okay. Well, you know, you said he has a lot of brains, man. You can't ride them brains, you know? Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're going to go ahead. We're going to let you ride hokey pokey today. Man. You sound man. like my daddy. Go ahead. <laughs> Here we go, man. So uh, speaking of today, you know, uh, that's where we're going to start on this ride. And we're going to wear, like we said, uh, the wrestler hats for a change. And I've had many questions over the last four years since I've been doing these stud cast about how long did it normally take for a just beginning wrestler to become a star? and start making money that wrestlers on the top of the card make. So uh, this is a great subject for today's training. Since there are so many training facilities for wrestlers out there today, compared to back in the old school days, training facilities uh, just were really, really difficult to find. So let's start this training with how things were for beginning wrestlers in the old school days. And you couldn't find any of what I call today wrestling factories back years ago. You know, the wrestling factories weren't out there. So most professional wrestlers back in those days trained by existing wrestlers. And uh, usually because the existing wrestler happened to take a like for a kid or a young guy that wants to be a wrestler. And he says, OK, I'll try to train you. You know, so that's that's the way a whole lot of guys got started back in the day. 
your only advantage over other beginners basically was you either had to be from a amateur background or you had to be a member of a wrestling family. And if you had that advantage, your background was going to give you obviously an opportunity to become a star sooner than someone with no experience in the sport. No doubt about that. So either way, you weren't normally going to be able to work in main events for years after you started wrestling. There was so much involved in learning how to do everything necessary to become a star. Back in my grandfather's day, Roy's day, back in the early 1900s, the first thing you had to learn was how to shoot. And, uh, you know, muscle and body size back in those days, uh, it wasn't going to get you to the big money fast, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. uh, what really counted back in Roy's days was wrestling ability and knowledge of the sport, man, how to do it. And uh, there was a lot more important than muscles, I can tell you that. So you had to learn, uh, once you got started, uh, you had to learn the psychology of the sport. You know, and basically, uh, it's, it's how to tell a story in the ring. You know, they don't do it that way anymore. They don't tell the story anymore. I don't think a lot of them know how to tell the story. So yeah, I had to understand how to sell and when to sell to get started and, and make your way and move forward and up the card. You also had to, the opposite. You had to know when to make a comeback and how to make a comeback. You had to learn all the holes. And then you learned chain wrestling, which was instantly switching from one hole to another in a smooth transition. It took a long time to learn how to do that. Then you had to have the, along with all those wrestling skills, you had to have the proper attitude and the proper personality. You had to be likable, man. If, to make it in wrestling back in the day, you had to be likable to as many wrestlers as possible, likable to the bookers, and likable by the owners. And sometimes that meant kissing a little butt if you had to. <laughs> you had a Nick Goulas, you know, you couldn't go and tell him, you know, what everybody says about him. You know, you had to watch your mouth. You had all those things to contend with. And then came the next huge step in the, in the process. So after your skills and everything else I just mentioned had begun to develop, and you were probably at that point moving up the card, the next thing you had to do was wrestle with how to make a believable interview on television. And that part of it alone was as important as what you had already learned, man. <laughs> and for some wrestlers, it was even more difficult than the wrestling itself. In fact, for a lot of wrestlers, it was more difficult to do an interview than the actual match. But if you couldn't talk, you might never have a chance to walk to the top. You weren't going to get there if you couldn't talk. So it took most stars in the sport at least five years, uh, wrestling six or seven nights a week back in the day against quality opponents and developing the interview skills necessary to get to the top. And a few might make it sooner, but most would take years longer to get there than the five years. Some didn't get there at all, to be honest with you. In the sport today, things are really, really different, obviously, as everybody knows that uh, watches any of it anymore. And uh, muscles mean more today than uh, wrestling ability. And that's kind of been the way since about the 1980s. Uh, the training is completely different today. It's in uh, large groups with uh, much less emphasis on real wrestling and more emphasis on acrobatics and finishes and, uh, and bumps and uh, 
you know, so for the big companies, uh, you have to learn how to, to remember your interview instead of how to create one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> day, if we had to develop our own interviews and you didn't have time to sit and think about it. Sometimes you'd go into rooms and uh, they'd be doing interviews. It'd be an interview day on Wednesdays in Florida, for instance. And you would do uh, maybe 20 interviews. Uh, <laughs> and, and so would uh, 20 other wrestlers. You'd spend an afternoon all doing interviews. So no one today gets the opportunity to learn how to work on the mat night after night, like, uh, like we did in the old days. 300 nights or more a year in the old days. I remember working 10 times a week, a hell of a lot of weeks. And then on that works out, if you did that every week, you'd be wrestling a whole lot more than that. And today, the guys out there today, they're lucky if they wrestle 100 nights a year. Uh, really lucky if they wrestle that much. Mm-hmm. So today, you're paid by a contract. In the old days, you were paid by a percentage of the event, you know, percentage of the gate, which was mm-hmm. whatever came through the door, you got a percentage of it. Everything is different now than it was in the 1980s and before that. So basically in the old days, to answer my question, it took basically a minimum of five years for most wrestlers to start making the big money. Some never got there at all, like I said. And in today's wrestling, if you're in a major company, I think the big money comes sooner and probably there's a lot more of it but there are hundreds of less wrestlers than there was in the old days. You know, and, and I don't think, Dave, that I would enjoy today's wrestling as near as much as I did back in the old days uh, because of uh, the dramatic change in all of it. Wow. So how long did it take you to really get up there, like win a belt or start working on the top, Ron? Well, I started in 1970. Uh, I won my first belt in 1973. Oh. I started working on top that same year. But you got to bear in mind, Dave, I was a third-generation wrestler, and my father and my grandfather blazed a pretty wide trail for me, man. You know I mean? Uh, they set me up, basically, mm-hmm. to be successful earlier than most guys. And uh, as I said before, if you had a little amateur background, if you uh, came from a wrestling family, you had a big advantage, and uh, and it worked that way for me. It only took me about three years to get there, but uh, you know that was really an unusual thing. What was that first belt? What, what, what was it? Three years into your career, I won the Southern Heavyweight Championship from uh, Paul Jones, hmm. and uh, then uh, I won the Georgia Championship from Bill Watts. Uh, later on, I won the Florida Championship from Buddy Cole. And then I started to win more belts after that. But uh, the first one was Paul Jones for the Southern Heavyweight Championship. Won it in Tampa, Florida. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty cool. Of course, your family's history is is like nobody else in in the sport. And I want to tell you, too, I love Brutus, but I can't wait for that book about your family, Ron. So that would be cool. Where are we going to ride to next? Well, we're going to enter the Knoxville Coliseum, man. We're riding into the old Coliseum again on Friday night, April 14th, 1977. 13 days after this match, someone is going to be facing the NWA World Champion Harley Race. So this is a six-match card, and as compared to the last week's card of five, uh, which uh, I was looking back at the cards, uh, a lot of them were six matches by this point. Uh, Last week was an unusual case with just five. 
The first match on this card of April 14, 1977, was George McCreary against Rip Smith. Uh, Jimmy Golden wrestled somebody who had not been in, on a Knoxville card in more than two years. And, uh, boy, I watched the match, and, boy, was he greatly improved. And uh, Jimmy Russell, Dutch Mantell, uh, great guy and a great friend. Bob Wharton Jr. on this card uh, wrestled Dick Steinborn. It was the first time they had ever wrestled each other in Knoxville. Both of those guys, tremendous wrestlers. What a tremendous match. And because of the great match Mike Stallings had been having with Norvell Austin all over the southeastern area, and they had a great one the Friday before, they returned uh, in the match against each other again. But this time we made it a special submission-only match in which the winner had to make his opponent give up in order to win the match. Then there were two main events on this one again. The newly crowned champions, Bob Armstrong and my brother Rob, were not defending against the former champions, the Von Steiger brothers. It was a Texas Tornado death match, which meant all four guys are going to be in the ring at the same time. Falls didn't count. It's no disqualification, no no time limit. And After a man got beaten or covered and counted out, gave up whatever it was, he got a 30-second rest period, and then they got a count of 10 to get to his feet, or he lost the match. So those matches were always grueling ones, man, uh, and they usually last for quite a while. The last match of the night was going to bring Southeastern one step closer to deciding who was going to wrestle Harley Race for the NWA world title. In last week's stud cast, I'd beaten the Mongolian Stomper. I'd won the Southeastern title, and I kept my Southeastern TV trophy. And uh, at this point, I hold both the titles. So this week's last main event match uh, was a very controversial match. And we're going to talk about that controversy when we get to the TV here in just a couple of minutes. Because other wrestlers got involved in that match last week. This one, the ring will be surrounded by wrestlers. It was a no DQ, no time limit lumberjack match. Wow. uh, All right. So. I am betting that we're going to ride into that TV show of April 8 of 77. Right, Ron? Uh, you're correct, Dave. You're right on it. You're uh, correct, Dave. So, but keep in mind, as far as the fans knew, I didn't know what the next match was at the beginning of this TV show. I'm going to start this television <laughs> show. And fans, uh, in order to, to to figure out where where this TV show is going, need to realize that, that I just won the Southeastern belt from the stomper i now had the southeastern championship and the tv trophy and uh and i was expecting something big to happen on this show so we're going to jump right into that show and the tv opened with me at the set i got the both the southeastern belt i got the big trophy sitting on the desk and the, the still shot of the weeks behind me and Les on the big set and uh on it there i was on the coliseum floor i had the belt over my head and my brother Rob, who had been involved in the match and been to the back of the building fighting, had come back and he was—he had the TV trophy held over his head. And um, boy, the studio crowd, they popped as soon as they saw the shot when the cameras backed off from the close-up of Les and I. And I was ecstatic, man. I could hardly contain myself with the anticipation of the announcement of the upcoming shot that I had won with the NWA to get the shot at the NWA world title and Harley race. And I should have known something was, was up when Les kind of brushed over the excitement. I was, you know, <laughs> exuberant, you know, and, uh, 
And uh, Les, you know, asked the director to back the video up and show how I had won the extremely important match for both the Southeastern titles. Mm-hmm. So video began where I accidentally collided with the ref and he went down and he went down hard too. And I began to describe the action at that point. And I was very still extremely excited, man. This is a big win for me, right? So Carson uh, made his first move in the match when the ref went down naturally, and he immediately loaded his glove out there on the floor, and he jumped up on the apron, and he motioned for the stomper to bring me over. Once I collided with the ref, I went down, stomper just kept putting the boots to me. And uh, so Don says, you know, basically motions him, bring him over here, let me do him, do him in. So Robert came down to ringside, he, and I told him, watch the match, Rob, I may need you. And he pulled Carson off the apron and he hit him with a big punch. And obviously that was a big pop from the crowd. Uh, at the same time, about the time Rob got there, shortly after Bob Orton Jr. arrived down there and he nailed Rob from behind. And the, both of them got to fighting at the ringside and they fought back toward the back big black curtain that hung in the back of the Coliseum. So the ref was still down at this point. Carson, again, he's, he's only got punched once. He's still got his glove loaded. He jumped up on the apron and the stomper still pounding me and uh and he motions for him to full Nelson me and to bring me over there to him. So the ref's trying to get me on his feet. The ref still, you know, he's groggy, he's on his hands and knees, trying to struggle to his feet. And Carson threw a big right hand at me with his loaded glove, and I ducked it, and boy, he nailed the stomper, and the stomper flew, man. And the crowd popped. Man, what a pop that was, uh, you know, and it, I think that's one of the first times they had seen Carson hit the stomper with his gloated glove. Mm. Uh, stomper sailed across the ring and he landed almost on top of the referee that was just about to get to his feet. I dived on stomper and the ref began to count. Well, Carson, man, he's scrambling on the ring apron, trying to get in to, to get me off of the stomper before he got beat. And he lost his balance and trying to crawl through the ropes and he fell on his face. And they, that got a little pop in itself. And then Stomper was counted out. And I was still laying on top of him. And Carson jumped up till he had his glove loaded. And he came to hit me from behind. But I got a glimpse of him on his way over. And when he took the shot, I rolled off of the Stomper. And by gosh, Carson hit him a second time, man, with his loaded glove. Boy, and then there was an explosion from the crowd when that one took place. The bell rung. Referee raised my hand. I rolled out of the ring before Carson could get to me. He was trying to get to me again. And that brought us right back to the spot where this little segment at TV began with that still shot that showed me with the belt over my head and Rob with the TV trophy in his hands. He'd come back to the ring. And uh, the studio erupted every time Carson had nailed the stomper, just like the Coliseum crowd did in, in the video itself. And when the video was over, I jumped up, man. I was so enthusiastic about having won, and this is it for me. I'm going to get the shot, you know, and I I, I put the belt in the air, man, over my head, and I, and I was screaming to the studio audience. I said, I want to thank all of you for making this happen, and in just 12 days, I'm going to be ready to win the NWA World Championship belt. And the crowd exploded, man. They were like, wow, they were all enthusiastic about it. Now, Les had been sitting there kind of quietly since I arrived at the set. And during the entire video, let me do the talking. 
And he asked me, Ron, can you please sit back down here with me again for a second? And he was very, very low in his tone and demeanor. And he says, uh, Ron, you know, I, I don't know how to say this to you any better than just, just to say it. You know, uh, he says, we've been friends, you and I, for years. And I want you to know that what I'm about to tell you in no way comes from me. He said, this is what the Southeastern officials have decided to do regarding the NWA world title opponent for Harley Race. He says, uh, they want you to wrestle the Mongolian Stomper again next Friday in a no DQ, no time limit lumberjack match. And uh, this time the studio exploded again, but it was in booze this time instead of cheers. <laughs> Fans were hoping that I was going to be the guy. Yeah, but I, I I would think that after you've won the belt and the trophy the night before, you kind of automatically are the guy to take on race and be the opponent for the world title. So why would Southeastern why would Southeastern set it up with a stomper again? Well, I, I think uh, obviously I thought that instantly, and I think probably everybody, the fans in the studio, obviously thought it, and I think probably everybody at home too uh, thought the same thing, you know, and. And, uh, you know, if I won that double Southeastern championship match, that's what I call that match, that I should have got the shot automatically, Harley. And I was planning on that being the case. So the TV crowd had just made it apparent, you know, how they felt about my being named as the opponent for Harley. You know, uh, they exploded just, uh, you know, just the opposite of what they had earlier in the show when they got the news. But they were really merely mad about it. And I asked Les right off. Uh, uh, you know, basically, that's are you serious? You know, I mean, if this, and then, uh, you know, I call them the Southeastern officials. I, yeah, I said something like, you know, if the so called Southeastern officials were serious, are they serious? I was kind of blown away. So I said, you know, was my winning both the Southeastern belt and the TV trophy not enough to prove that I deserve the title shot? You know, and, and then, then I asked him, uh, well, if I win this upcoming lumberjack, will that be enough to get the title shot? So I was wondering where where's this going? So Les let me vent quietly, but then he dropped his head because he didn't have an answer for my last question about if I won the lumberjack match, would that be enough to get the title shot? He said, uh, you know, very slowly, and uh, you know, he, he was he was not happy about what was going on. He said, I can't tell you, Ron, that winning next Friday will automatically be enough for you to get the title shot. He said, that decision uh, doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> you know, he said, I can tell you, however, that according to the Southeastern officials, if you lose next Friday, you are not going to get the title shot. Wow. <laughs> so, so no title shot for you. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, 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 that was all. It was a possibility for darn sure, you know. <laughs> all right, but wait a second. So, you're you're saying Southeastern officials said if you beat the Stomper twice in two weeks on both the Southeastern belt and the Southeastern TV trophy, you still are not automatically the dude that gets to face Harley Race. And worse, if you lose. You will definitely not get the shot. Hey, it sounds like a you don't win, you don't win proposition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, wow, it was a it was a big downer. I can tell you that, you know, and uh, yeah, and you and old hokey pokey man, you got it right, Dave. You know, uh, he's keeping up pretty good right now. All so right. The studio went crazy. 
they 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 got the news just like I did, and boy, they went crazy with the booze again, man. And and I turned the list. Now I was I was upset at this point. I was like, wait a minute, this ain't what I expected to happen here today. So I turned the list and I said, hey, I want you to do something for me, Les. I want you to tell the southeastern officials, whoever the hell they are, <laughs> that I'm going to give them no choice in this. I'm going to win next Friday. And I'm going to win the Friday after that if I need to, because when Harley Ray shows up in the southeastern area and he steps into the ring in Knoxville on April 27th, that he will be looking across the ring at me. And I took my belt, my TV trophy, and I left the set to a standing ovation, by golly. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a kind of an awkward start to the show. You probably did not have a smile on your face when you walked off. No, no, far from it, far from it. <laughs> Dude, that's that's crazy. I mean, it kind of puts another wrinkle in the entire drama that this was building uh, and obviously building around Harley's upcoming opponent. I mean, how does this not make the front office at Southeastern make the whole company a heel? I mean, that's that's crazy. What are you up to now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's there was a reason there was a reason for this so i'd heard some rumors that, that some of the fans had gotten word that i was the owner of southeastern wrestling ah uh, and you know that that was the kiss of death if you were a wrestler and you owned a wrestling company and people knew it so you know i wanted to make sure i eliminated that thought or idea that i was the man behind southeastern just as fast as i could so by making a heel out of the company and its so-called officials, as I put it, right. I was putting an end to that rumor of ownership. Uh, in a way, I was starting to put an end to it. I wasn't at the end of it, but I was beginning to put an end to it. <laughs> and it, 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 it wouldn't make any sense for me as an owner to belittle and accuse my own company of not treating me right. And at the same time, I was, I was basically squashing that old rumor and making a bigger baby face out of myself, you know, right. by becoming yeah. an underdog. I was really at this point now, uh, them having took the possibility away from me being the guy. It made me the underdog more than ever. And uh, more than ever, it made me the people's choice for the title shot. Dude, we're going to have to call you captain swerve because <laughs> I mean, this, uh, this angle that's that's pretty awesome. That's the that's a cool deal right there that you came up with. So, and an awesome opening to the TV as well. What happens next? Well, we kept the heat and the intrigue uh, by adding something else that nobody expected on this uh, show. This is a great opening of this show. I thought Don Carson, obviously, now he's the guy involved in all of this. He came out in the studio for his live match. Man, he he's got his stomper in the match. And boy, the studio, they were waiting on something like that. Wow, I just left there. They're already a little angry. And here comes Don Carson out there. And wow, they boy, they tore into him with the booze. And, uh, <laughs> but the stomper wasn't with him. Carson had to go back to the dressing room to get the stomper. So, uh, you know, Les is trying to kill some time, and he don't know what the heck's going on here. But it was obviously when they came back into the studio together that there was a problem between the two of them. Things weren't right between the Stomper and Carson. 
Okay, now I'm going to call you Captain Obvious because, yeah, the, I think everybody could see that, no doubt about it. But, I mean, you're kind of blowing some minds now, but but obviously it had something to do with Carson hitting the stopper not once, but twice with the loaded glove the night before and clearly causing the stomper to lose the belt. Well, that's pretty astute of you, Dave, you know, and it, and it could have been, but you know me, I'm not going to say right now exactly what, what the deal oh, is. On. Yeah, you know, so there may be even more coming in this segment, you know, <laughs> besides this, you know. So, so I will say, though, fans in the studio, they never shut up and they never stop booing. The entire three minutes or four minutes it took for the stomper to beat the two opponents that were waiting for him in the ring. And then as soon as the match was over, Carson jumped in the ring like he always did when stomper got the big win. And he ran to the stomper to raise his hand in victory, which was the usual ending to stomper's matches. He won almost all of them. But this time the stomper jerked his hand away and he stormed out of the ring and he left Carson in the ring alone. <laughs> no, went to the dressing room. So Carson went to the set with Les alone for the first time since the Stomper had arrived in Southeastern. Oh. So Les said he was glad Carson had come back to the set before the interview. He told Carson, you know, he says, I got to tell you, we received an overnight delivery package. It's a video that uh, arrived at the TV station earlier today. It was from Terry Funk and Terry's instructions. To me, he called me after I'd seen it. He said, I don't want you to show this without uh, Don being the first guy to see it. And uh, so Les said, you know, Don, this is from Terry Funk. It's for you. And nobody in this studio has any idea what it's about. So Carson's face lit up. Now, you know, it was obvious he was hoping for some good news. He's not having a good day with the stomper, obviously. So the video ran. And Terry Funk opened it up with a thank you. Started right off by thanking the Southeastern officials for agreeing with him that if Ron Fuller won both the Southeastern titles, he wouldn't automatically get the championship match with Harley Race. So, uh, you know, I mean, this sets a tone here right off the bat. And then he, it was very brief, the interview, and then he spoke next directly to Don Carson. And he promised Don Carson and the Mongolian Stomper a $10,000 reward if they won the Lumberjack match against me. It was coming up the next Friday night. The crowd went crazy again, man. They booed just like Terry Funk was live right there in the studio. They were like, they hated Terry Funk, all the Southeastern fans. So then Funk finished, he pulled out a handful of $100 bills. And he repeated that $10,000 figure and, uh, and, and promised Carson and Stomper, you're going to get this. All you got to do is beat Ron Fuller. <laughs> and uh, and th- there was pandemonium in the studio at that point. I mean, they, they were really mad at Funk and mad at Carson, too. And, you know, Les threw it the commercial break. And when he did, Carson's pounding on the desk and he was screaming, I love you, Terry Funk. I love you. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, I mean, it seems like this one does not have an end to it at all. So what what could be coming up next? So Don, Don Carson's interview after the commercial break and Les opened up with, uh, you know, with how despicable Terry Funk was to get involved with all this, you know, and uh, 
He said, I can't believe Funk sent a video like this and, and, and that he's going back to his bounties again, just like he did last fall before his world title match with Ron Fuller. And he added that this time he wasn't even the world champion anymore. You know, maybe as a world champion, he might have had a reason and, and you know, they could see that they would allow him to be uh, uh, putting bounties out on people's head. But he, at this point, he wasn't even the champion. So Carson was sitting there, and Carson was all aglow, man. I mean, he was just all smiles. His day had turned around quick-like, man. So Les pounced on him, though, before Carson could take off, man, and, uh, and enjoy himself. And uh, Les asked him why, why he, that he couldn't. You know, he said, I couldn't help notice, Don, that something's not right between you and the stomper. You know, what, what's going on? Carson obviously denied there's no problem between them two of them. And they still had this huge smile on his face. And he said, you know, uh, Les Thatcher, uh, Terry Funk has just changed everything. He goes, that $10,000 bounty, that's going to ensure that my stomper is going to get back on track. And that we're going to buy winning Friday night against Ron Fuller. It's going to produce a big payday for me and the stomper. And, uh, and he said, you know, possibly it's still going to put Stomper in the running for the title match. All he's got to do is win next Friday night, and he might be the guy that's going to get Harley. So uh, Carson was beaming, and he was screaming at the fans to shut up because obviously they didn't want to hear any of it. And he said, you know, Les Thatcher, I came out here today upset with the way things were going, and he goes, now I'm on cloud nine thanks to the great Terry Funk. Boy, he was just a – he couldn't say enough great things about Terry. And uh, Les didn't stop, though. He pushed again at that possible problem between Carson and Stomper, you know. The, your earlier prediction, Dave, was right, you know, that, that you know, him nailing the Stomper twice with his loaded glove caused yeah. him to lose. It yeah. created a pretty big rift between the two of them. So uh, maybe you should make old Hokey Pokey your regular horse, man. You, they, you really got it going there a little bit. <laughs> So, I'll, I'll consider it. So, so it definitely had something to do with the Stomper losing the Southeastern belt because Carson hit him twice the night before and uh, hit him with a loaded glove. And, uh, boy, Carson got really upset at this point. I mean, his party was pretty much over. Les had really toned down his party, and he accused Les now of trying to create a problem between him and the Stomper. What are you doing, Les Thatcher? You're trying to create a problem between me and the Stomper. There ain't no problem there, you know. <laughs> and the studio got to cheering again because they were loving this line of questioning, man. They were really getting on Carson, man. <laughs> and he was just getting madder and madder. And for the first time in two years since Carson arrived in Southeastern, he stormed off the set and there was time remaining on the interview. How about that? <laughs> that's that's funny right there. The ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows of Don Carson. That's got to be one of the better first segments of a TV show that I've ever heard of, Ron. That's cool. Well, you know, there's, there's so much going on on the, in, in this segment that, that you know, I'm going to take a, next week's today's training. I'm going to go back and break down everything that we've done in this first segment today to explain to fans a lot of things that maybe they didn't get clear today in a I certainly did give fans a lot in that first 20 minutes of that TV show to digest. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to take a shot at next week, uh, today's training, and uh, and try to make sure that fans really understood all that happened in this first segment. 
Oh, no doubt. All right. Can't wait to find out about the rest of the TV show. It's a good place. Let's take a break right here. And this studcast will continue in a moment. Stay with us. Fans from around the world say they would love to have videos of the great wrestling of the past. Southeastern and Continental are classic examples of that. To own a piece of wrestling history is a dream. To realize your dream, all you have to do is go to tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. Get five DVDs, 67 historic matches, and 12 amazing hours for only $39.99, including shipping. Two of the best territories of the old school days, Hulk and Andre. Rick Flair, Bob Armstrong and Sons, Arn Anderson, Austin Idol, Kevin Sullivan, The Fullers, and Jimmy Golden, Joe Duke, Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs, Lord Humongous, Jacques Rougeau, Dr. Tom Pritchard, Tommy and Johnny Rich, The Nightmares, and so many more. Don't miss this exclusive offer. At TNStud.com, click Stud Store. Five DVDs, 67 matches, 12 hours, only $39.99 with no shipping cost. That's the best deal in the history of wrestling. We are back. Another stud cast. David Summers here with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, the storyteller in the wrestling business. And don't forget, tnstud.com. tnstud.com is where you find every stud cast, every super stud cast. I mean, everyone from day one, it's all right there. Plus DVDs, photos, t-shirts, You'll find it all at tnstud.com. All right, back on the trail, Stud. Where did we pick up? We're going to pick up with the second match on that TV. It's with uh, the Von Steigers. And they were plenty mad, having lost their Southeastern tag belts the night before, and they took it out on their opponents, by golly, in the TV match. Uh, they won with their so-called German crabs on both of the guys, both of the opponents. And they might have called them German crabs, but to me, they were just a plain old Boston crab, man. I don't know how the heck they turned that into German, <laughs> but uh, they did anyway. Yeah. So Rob and Bob, they lit the studio up again when they came to the set, and they had their newly won Southeastern tag belts with them. They watched their win from the night before in the Coliseum, and it was a darn good win. In fact, they pinned both the Von Tigers at the same time. I doubt that it ever happened to those two boys before. And uh, they stayed with less after the video, and they split the interview with the Von Steigers in Studio B. The Von Steigers began the interview. Then they apologized to all their fans who were zero. They had no fans. <laughs> and all their countrymen. I don't know how many countrymen they had out there watching, but they had no fans. I'm pretty sure about that. And they said they had never been pinned at the same time and that both Armstrong and Fuller were going to experience much worse than that following Friday, because they planned on putting them in their inescapable German crab hole. That was about all they could get said in a minute. And uh, so Bob and Rob said they were obviously proud that they kept their promise last week that they'd made on TV to end the Germans' run and that they had no intention of losing the belts now and uh, that the German team had never experienced anything like a Texas tornado death match and that, they, that they're that they going to be in one of them the following Friday. And uh, it was an all-American type of tag match and one of the most dangerous matches in the world. And it truly was. Those, uh, those type of death matches were really, really dangerous to be in. Personality profile was again built around the upcoming NWA world title. Uh, and the third segment of the show began with Norvell Austin 
getting a good win over quality opponent Tommy Gilbert out of the Memphis territory. Norvell looked really strong. It was one of his first TV matches in quite a while, and he took advantage of it. He was a good worker, man. He always took advantage uh, when he had a shot at getting a match on TV. Uh, the original junkyard dog, that's what he was calling himself at this point. Uh, he didn't have to say original. He was the original junkyard dog. So mm. he had changed his name from Norvell, and he made everybody call him the junkyard dog. Uh, and he really got after Tommy Gilbert, and he finished him with his patented diving headbutt off the ropes, which is a really, really good move. Mike Stallings, who was a very popular babyface, joined Les at the set, and they looked at the match uh, in which he and the junkyard dog had had the night before in the Coliseum. And as I said before, uh, it was a great match, and it ended in a 30-minute draw. And after the bell rang and both of them had their hands raised to signify that it was over, Austin jumped Stallings from behind. And he put an extremely painful backbreaker on him, not the kind that Bob Wharton Jr. used, uh, the kind where he sat down in the middle of your back and he put his hands around your chin and he pushed down on your back and reared up on <laughs> on your upper torso. And uh, mm -hmm. boy, that was an extremely painful hold i've been in it a few times man and uh, you know uh, so obviously stallings didn't like the fact he was upset about how the move was applied after the match was done match was over they'd had a draw and uh he jumped him going out of the ring and he put that move on him so les agreed with him that that was a very very painful move and uh, he agreed that uh, you know the southeast and he was happy that that southeastern officials had given those two men a special submission rules match for the following Friday night. And those rules obviously meant that you had to make your opponent give up, tap out, submit, whatever you want to call it, and uh, in order to win the match. Uh, and uh, both of those interviews were really good from those guys. And I was in the last match of the show. I was standing in the ring when the segment opened. I had the TV trophy in front of me and the southeastern belt around my waist. I had an opponent named David Schultz. And uh, because I was still upset with not being the opponent for the world title match, I kind of took it out on old Dave, you know. So after the match, I went to the set with Les, and I made the last interview. And I had plenty to talk about. You know, I began with Terry Funk, the rattlesnake from Texas, I called him. And, you know, and, and he was back again. You know, and I said his blood money offered uh, was not going to do any good for him this time. Uh, not going to be like the last time when they got Ronnie Garvin to jump off of my throat and put me in the hospital, that it, that his blood money wasn't gonna, ever going to be spent. He would not be wrestling Harley Race ever in Knoxville, that's for sure. And the Stomper not going to be wrestling Harley Race. And, uh, you know, Carson, I said, is not going to ever see a dime of the Rattlesnake's money because uh, he's not going to win Friday night. So then I tore into the so-called Southeastern official. Uh, that they had made, you know, they, they must be from Texas, I think I said, you know. I like the dirty funks, you know. <laughs> they, got, they got no respect for the fans in this part of the country. The fact that they would even allow Terry Funk to put another bounty on my head spoke volumes about who Southeastern officials felt they were and, uh, and the, who they really would like to see become champion here in that Southeastern match. You know, maybe it was Terry Funk. Maybe it was the, the Stomper. 
And then I, I told them that I only thought I wanted uh, to win the title, but uh, this TV show uh, had really opened my eyes. You know, uh, what Southeastern wrestling officials had done to me that day, I said, uh, after winning both their belt and keeping their TV championship the night before, it made me more determined than ever to be looking across the ring at Harley Race just down the road. So that, uh, you know, coming up, Come hell or high water, I didn't care who they put in the ring with me. I was going to come out with my hand raised. The only wrestler I was focused on now was the NWA champion, Harley Race. And uh, the studio crowd popped, and I'm sure those at home probably did too. And uh, that Harley match had suddenly become much more than just a world championship match at this point. It now involved another bounty, obviously, this time from an ex-world champion. It involved another match to possibly remove me as a contender for the world title. And most importantly, it had become a war between a wrestler and the company you work for. Mm, no doubt. So you are making a heel out of your own company. I don't, I, I don't think that's ever been done before. Uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> you know, we were doing a lot of things, Dave, that had never been done before, man. And that, yeah. that was just one of them on this particular show. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we all see that, Ron, and in so many different ways, too. All right, so tell us about the results of the following Friday night and the attendance. How'd you guys do? Well, Rip Smith uh, beat Jordan McCrary in the first match. Uh, Jimmy Golden beat Dutch Mantell. Uh, Bob Orton Jr. beat uh, Dick Steinborn. And Mike Stallings got injured during the course of the week. He didn't make it to the Friday night match with Noel Val Austin. But uh, we had somebody there that the fans were more than happy to see in the ring. They hadn't seen him in a while. Ron Wright took uh, Mike Stallings' place, and he kept the rules. He said, I want it to be a, a submission match anyway. I want to I wanna show the junkyard dog what pain's all about. And uh, so Ron Wright won that submission match. Uh, he made Norvell quit, and uh, then he, he's actually going to be returning. The next week, uh, in a bigger, bigger match, uh, Bob Armstrong and um, my brother Rob won the Texas Tornado Tag Match over the Von Steiger brothers, and I won the No DQ, No Time Limit Lumberjack Match with the wrestlers stationed around the ring. Uh, and the finish of that match, wow, what a tremendous pop we got on that! Uh, the crowd was in excess of five thousand, Dave, for the second week in a row. It was the 12th consecutive Coliseum show above 5,000 in attendance since the beginning of 1977. Man, that's pretty sporty for that market, no doubt. So Southeastern was absolutely rocking. All right, time for us to get our cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree. Set it up one more time for us, Ron. Well, this learning tree question came from a gentleman named uh, Tim Graff. He, he said... Uh, and then he asked, he, he made a statement. He said, okay, teach me the economics of booking tag teams instead of single of single matches. And if I need to fill a two-hour card, how does it make financial sense to fill one slot with a tag match when you need to pay four guys or five if there's a manager instead of just two guys? So great question, you know, and, uh, and I think last week I, I made a guess that this guy was a promoter. And I have since found out that Mr. Graff is an accountant, you know, so I can understand him wanting to know the answer to this question, being an accountant. And maybe it makes it more logical than his even being a promoter. 
Either way, the question has probably been discussed hundreds of times since the sport began. So uh, to answer this one, I want to back up to my grandfather's day in the infancy of professional wrestling. Obviously, the more wrestlers on the card, the less each one made. Uh, with the percentage of gross gate got split among them. So, uh, you know, more guys on the card, the less you were going to make. So back in Roy's day, now this is, uh, Roy started in the early 1920s. Uh, there might only be four wrestlers on a card with only two single matches. And now what they did is since you only had the two single matches, you made both of those single matches two out of three falls. So that means that most events had a maximum. You could have a maximum of six falls with just four guys on the card. And an average card lasted about two hours. So that meant each match was three falls with an average of 20 minutes per fall. And usually after each fall, there was about a five-minute break. Sometimes wrestlers went to the dressing room. Sometimes they stayed in the ring. And after a short five-minute break was taken between the falls, uh, each match would then last a total of potentially 75 minutes. And including the breaks between the falls, that, that would total about 75 minutes. So it was pretty grueling back in the day, man, uh, to every night go out and wrestle in these single matches that you're wrestling for an hour. And uh, you only have four, four compressors on the card. Uh, you know, And you had to go out there and make sure that you not only brought those people to the building, but that you kept their interest and you let them send them home wanting to see more. So as with every sport, though, fans began to expect more, uh, and, and they still do today. And my grandfather, because he had three brothers at wrestled, he may have been the first to bring tag wrestling to the South. I'm pretty darn sure he was, as a matter of fact. And it gave fans the tag match an opportunity to see a totally different type of match with more action. Because in tag matches, obviously, you could rest on the apron of the ring, you know. So, uh, you know, you could you could expend more energy when you were in there. Mm -hmm. So that's where my grandfather got even more creative. So what he did is he would take the same four-man card of the earlier days and have two single matches, one fall and instead of two out of three. And they pick a guy on each team to wrestle each other in a single match. And then the other two guys that are going to be in the tag match come back and wrestle each other in a single match, a one-fall match. And then the four of them would come back and wrestle in a two-out-of-three-fall tag match. So now he had a three-fall tag match plus two single matches, and he still only had four wrestlers. So he had five total matches rather than a potential six total matches. But, uh, you know, he lost one match on that type of card, but he gained a tremendous amount of excitement because those tag matches were really, really a lot more action than you could do when you were in single matches. So as the sport grew, obviously the crowd size increased and the number of matches per event grew also. Each wrestler worked obviously less time per event, but as it got bigger, you know, uh, you got more guys there, uh, you know, uh, so you, you got less time in the ring and the percentage of gate paid to them and the money was split, obviously, among all the wrestlers that were there. The good thing was that fans enjoyed the sport more. So the crowds were bigger. They just continued to grow. 
And the pay split among the ranchers got to be larger because the crowds grew larger. So getting back to Mr. Graff's question here, how does it make sense to book a tag team match with four or maybe five guys to pay rather than a single match with only two to pay? So here's the way I always looked at that, Mr. Graff, at the number of boys on the card. It never was about the number of guys to pay on a card as much as what you offered those fans out there on that card. Fans expect certain matches, and one of them uh, in today's time frame is certainly at least one tag match per event. But if your emphasis is on how few wrestlers you can book and provide a two-hour event, you're in trouble from the very start, you know. Uh, so drawing big crowds really has nothing to do with how many wrestlers or even matches are on a card. It has everything to do with how much interest is in those wrestlers and their particular matches. That's why your booker is much more valuable than having 20 guys on a card. Fans everywhere want to see their favorites. They want to get emotional. They want to be intrigued. They want to get involved with their stars. They need the angles. They need the programs that the booker was the guy that provided for them. So, Mr. Graff, don't be concerned about the number of wrestlers on the card. There will be plenty of money to split between all the wrestlers and promoters from the card if you get the fans invested in what's happening in the ring. Well, so there you go. Another great answer, Ron, and another great show today. Simply go to Ron's two pages that still take friends. His Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch pages on Facebook. You can like and follow him there and automatically become friends with a legend on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch on both. Great Southeastern Continental action from the 80s is also available in a five DVD pack with 67 matches over 12 hours of the best old school wrestling in the world. To get one of these classic five packs, go to tnstud.com, click stud store, own your piece of wrestling history for only $39.99. That includes shipping. Super Studcast number 39 is fantastic. It takes fans on a ride into Vern Gagne's legendary AWA territory with the historian George Shire and the Sheik's big-time wrestling territory with historian Dave Berzinski. More than three hours of tremendous wrestling history, and it's only $2.99 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. He may have scared a fan or two as a wrestler, but he has a novel that is terrorizing the world. Brutus is the African lion tragically sent to an American zoo that escapes into the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. There's a story for you. It's compared to Jaws. It has more than 45 worldwide five-star reviews. Get it now at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store for the autographed copy or amazon.com. Brutus novel for the book or to read the reviews. So, dude, you've got so many irons in the fire. How do you keep up with it all? That's amazing. Well, man, uh, you know, I'm really lucky. Uh, the book uh, has just been tremendous and it's been accepted. Wow. I'm just uh, I'm overwhelmed by uh, by the reviews and especially being, uh, you know, compared to Jaws and that type of thing. So 
I do have quite a bit going on. You're right about that, Dave. I am a fairly busy guy. And, uh, and the old stud store, man, at the tnstud.com site, it, it stays pretty busy. But before we finish the day, Dave, uh, I want to change our format slightly. Uh, I have something else very important to say today. Uh, <laughs> you know, life moves past us all so fast, Dave, uh, especially as we get older, man. I really notice it uh, nowadays. Uh, it seems like we lose so many wrestlers now that have a hard time keeping up with the ones that pass. You know, I, I, that's people... People have to tell me sometimes, Ron, do you know this person is gone or that person is gone? So, you know, as I continue to crank out these stud casts and super stud casts, I sometimes forget to honor those that meant so much to the sport and to me personally. There are three of them today that I, I, I feel like I must acknowledge because they were all three of them special to me. The first one is a great Great guy and a tremendous worker, uh, Dean Ho, of Hawaiian descent. He came to southeastern Knoxville in late 1978. He was instantly a star, a tremendous, very popular babyface. Fans really loved him. He was a very, very good worker and a great guy and, uh, and an asset to any wrestling crew, I'm sure, any place he ever went and wrestled. Another one I would like to just pay tribute to is one of the best lady wrestlers of all time who recently passed, Ann Casey. And uh, she wasn't just a great wrestler for my companies, and then she wrestled for all four of my companies, but for many territories around the country and probably outside the United States as well. She was very professional inside and outside the ring. She was a credit to all of the ladies of the ring. The hats off to all of those ladies for all of the years that uh, did such a tremendous job in the ring. And so many great ladies uh, made their mark in the sport of wrestling, and uh, Ann Casey was certainly one of them. And of the three uh, I wanted to mention today, uh, Buddy Colt uh, is really the most special to me. I first saw Buddy Russell in Georgia when I was still in high school. He was managed by someone. It's going to be familiar to all of our listeners here on the Studcast. It's Southeastern's old general, Homer Odell. He used to manage Buddy Colt and uh, Colt and Homer. Boy, they made a great combination. Homer did the talking on the mic. And, uh, boy, the great Buddy Colt certainly did the talking in the ring, man. Uh, you know, and it was in Florida years later where I really grew to appreciate the talent of Buddy Colt. I had the opportunity to work with him many, many times, maybe 50 times. And he had learned to make his own interviews by this point. He didn't need uh, Homer Odell anymore. And he became very good at making his own interviews, mm -hmm. uh, just like Ronnie Garvin, who came to the Southeast and, and uh, had Homer doing some talking for him and uh, also uh, Big Bad John. But uh, once he started doing his own interviews, he certainly got it done. Colt was a phenomenal wrestler and athlete, and uh, he honored me, basically, by dropping the Florida heavyweight title on me. We talked about it, mentioned it earlier in the show. He is the guy I beat for the Florida heavyweight championship in 1973, and he was at his very best during that time frame. He was a wonderful person, man, and the consummate professional wrestler. His career ended in one of the worst ways possible. Uh, in a private 
plane crash that took the life of another great wrestler man, an all-time great Bobby Shane. Mm. But he got a traumatic injury to his leg and foot. He never wrestled again after this plane wreck. And in, in tribute to his great work, Eddie Graham, being the fine man he was, put uh, Buddy on the wrestling, the Florida wrestling TV show as a co-host with another great guy that's no longer with us, Gordon Soley. So my brother and Rob, you know, we used to see Buddy some uh, several times in the last couple of years. And we go to this bi-monthly lunch event uh, that's for wrestlers and fans. It's in the Tampa area. And his health uh, was obviously waning, uh, you know, and then we could tell that when we talked to him. But uh, nevertheless, he always looked us up at those events. He, he always, you know, he wanted to say hello. And he always swore, and he said he had the genealogy records to prove it, that he was a Welch. He was an actual Welch family member. Wow. And he provided both Rob and I with one of those genealogical books that the experts put together. He gave it to Rob and I right before he died. You know, and, and I'm not experienced and uh, with exactly how to read or understand those type of books, but I'll say this for Buddy Cole. If he was truly a part of our family, I couldn't have been more proud to claim him. Wow. So lots of us old wrestlers, Dave, uh, as I would call us, are meeting our maker every day now, uh, great ones, and many of them not so great. But all of us are members of a special society, an honorary brotherhood, a unique athletes that all gave their very best to fans all over the world. I wish I had more time to give a tribute to all of them that we lose, and because every single one of them out there deserves it. Well, holy cow, I, I think you just did. You just gave a tribute, Ron, that was uh, just very eloquent at that, if I say so myself. Every true wrestling fan that ever lived had a special place in their heart for wrestlers that they admired. The fans and the sport brought out the best in those that made a living in the ring. There is no doubt about it. Well said, Dave, you know, and, uh, and it's a great way to end this studcast. Next studcast, uh, I've got a very big surprise for everyone concerning this NWA world title match that we've been talking about this upcoming match. Something's going to happen in the next studcast that uh, fans are going to freak. I think they're going to be like, wow, didn't see this coming. Hmm. So, uh, you know, thanks, everybody, obviously, out there for listening to us. And uh, don't forget to please spread the word about what we do here every week and take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. This is David Summers thanking you all for riding with us again and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.